This week on Dig Me Out. It's for you. With your hosts, Jason Ziak and Tim Minichi. Jay, this week, um, we have a... Well, this is an interview that I didn't tell anybody about. This is a secret interview. <laughs> Big surprise. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes things take a while to come together, and we mm-hmm. get uh, weeks and weeks of back and forth and mm-hmm. negotiations, and sometimes they come together real fast. Mm-hmm. And uh, usually I have, like... A weekend to uh, let everybody know, hey, we're going to be doing an interview. There were some questions at us. This one came together in like 48 hours, which... Uh, <laughs> That's good, because we've been chasing some others that have taken much longer. And, right. Uh, don't like to disappoint people. No, we like to have our schedule kept. And um, this is one that uh, I'm excited for, for a, a multitude of reasons. I have a lot of personal connections with this band. An artist um, going back to our college radio days mm-hmm. in the in the early '90s, and um, without further ado, as they say, joining us from the Windy City in Chicago, uh, frontman for you might know this band, Candlebox, uh, Mr. Kevin <laughs> Martin. Kevin, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks, man. It's quite the intro. Yes. <laughs> Do you live in Chicago? I feel really imp- no, I wish I did. Uh, I, I live in Los Angeles. I'm just out here. I do uh, do the Man Cow Morning Show, um, and then we decided to stick around for a couple of days and do some more press and stuff over here because we're playing uh, Hammond, Indiana tomorrow for um, a casino gig for Q101 and the Loop radio station of Chicago for a tailgate party for the, the AFC and NFC championship games tomorrow. So. I decided to stick around in town for a couple of days and get some work done. So it's uh, kind of like, and I was born here. Um, and so it's nice to always kind of get back to where I, uh, I remember loving um, uh, this city when I was a kid. And it's always nice to see family and everything when I'm here as well. So, yeah. Yeah. And I was, was reading, you know, catching up on the bio and stuff like that. I saw you were born in Illinois. And then in, re- in seeing some interviews, at some point you moved to San Antonio which was before moving to Seattle. And I was curious about your background um, moving around that much, uh, what your parents did that you'd be moving around and and where in all that your appreciation and your uh, love of music uh, sort of entered into the picture. Well, my dad was a, um, a regional sales manager for a, um, at first it was a bearing company, uh, I think, can't remember what it was called, um, bearing, head, bearing, bearing headquarters, something like that. And then he took a job with a salt company. Uh, he met this guy named John Ryan, who was from uh, Chicago and was trying to compete with uh, Morton Salt. So he started a company called Carry Salt. And my dad was a salesman, had been a salesman pretty much uh, from like 1956 on. It was a my dad was born in 22 in Chicago and was um, uh, joined the military when he was 18 and then went off to, to fight in World War II, uh, stormed Omaha Beach on June 6th, and then um, came back to the States in 46 and became a cop on the south side of town of Chicago, at which point 
I think he did that until like 56 and then got into sales because he didn't want to be a police officer anymore. And then in 1959, he met my mom. Um, she was 18 years old and I uh, was singing in a club here in Chicago. So uh, I think he really kind of felt that, you know, taking the sales job serious and you know, raising a family was a little bit safer than being a cop, especially on the south side of town. So um, that's kind of where that all started to end with the company um, moving and, and opening these um, salt mines and kind of regional, um, I guess, uh, markets, uh, if you will, took us from Chicago to Indiana to um, Missouri to Kansas, uh, where the main, um, I guess, salt mine factories and whatnot were. I was really young. I moved a lot. Um, so I, I don't really remember why we moved so much other than him saying, well, you know, we had to open these different divisions and whatnot. That's kind of what I was in charge of. And that's what took us to San Antonio when I was uh, 10 years old. Um, and then he left that job and uh, we were in San Antonio for a little while. Um, and then John called him and was living in Washington State and said, uh, I have a, another company. Why don't you come work for me again? So we moved to Seattle when I was 14. So that's kind of like my whole... Um, my whole life in a nutshell right there so your mom was your mom was a singer yeah my dad was a jazz musician my mom was a singer um, oh, wow. and um so music's kind of always always been in my um daily routine even i since i can remember um i don't remember ever coming home and not hearing music so they played in you know in the house all the time and you got the bug probably yeah. right away Oh, yeah. I mean, my dad was like, loved jazz. And so, you know, we always had a turntable. We always had a stereo. Um, and if my dad wasn't home playing records and, or, you know, playing my brother's saxophone and stuff like that, my mom would be, you know, listening to music or singing, you know, some sort of classic um, operatic piece. Or, you know, she loved um, gospel music and rhythm and blues. So it would be um, everything from Nina Simone to. Billy Holiday to ABBA, you know, um, it was kind of like just always there. Um, both my brothers were musicians, um, played in band and stuff through high school, and my sister as well. So, I, but I'm the only one who ever chose to really kind of make it a career. So, how did you how did you find uh, rock music? Was that the older brothers or sister? Well, actually, yeah, um, my sister is the oldest, um, and she turned me on to. I remember. Well, this would have been probably 75 or 70. I was born in 69. So I would have been five or six when I first kind of heard the cars and um, like um, there's some of the other kind of new wave bands that were starting that early. Um, the Ramones, you know, kind of that New York scene, I think was what my sister was really listening to. Maybe I was a little okay. bit older. But um yeah, she loved that, and then she also really liked, you know, like Joni Mitchell and um, and stuff like that. My brother Dennis was really into Rush and Black Sabbath, um, so I have hours and hours of laying on the bed with headphones listening to those records. Um, Elton John, Queen, Queen was really very, very big in our house. Uh, Queen was always on. We always were listening to something by them. I remember um, the game when that came out. That was like. My parents, you know, loved that. My sister loved it. It was kind of weird that they really liked that kind of rock and roll. My parents, because there was such a different difference in age. But yeah, I mean, it was just always there. I was really lucky to to have been kind of raised around great music. And Otis Redding was something that um, 
was probably my favorite thing that my mom listened to. Uh, my favorite singer and songwriter. Um, that's kind of what inspired me to be a singer. Uh, so what age is that? What That you decide that you're going to, or that you are interested in singing and can, can do it? God, I, I just, I started singing in choir um, in okay. second grade. I don't know if I ever decided that I wanted to be a singer. Um, I knew I wanted to play music. I mean, I started playing French horn in fourth grade. Um, I played a couple other flute and clarinet and you know, and shit like that, just to kind of um, experience other instruments. But drums, when I was 10, was where it was at. Um, mm. That's what I wanted. That's what I really wanted to do, was play drums, because I loved, you know, listening to the Rush records and Neil Peart, and, of course, Bonham with Led Zeppelin. And um, there's some, you know, there's that bombastic element. And also in Roger Taylor from Queen, you know, I was those records were, they just sounded so great. And I really loved that element of, of you know carrying that whole song with with um these great drum beats and stuff so that was really what i wanted to do um i would say probably when i was 17 16 or 17 um was when i thought maybe i wanted to be a singer in a rock band um that i'd say i had seen midnight oil play in seattle uh at the moore theater and i remember being really really kind of affected by peter garrett's um, command um, of an audience and that's when I was like oh you know I, I might be interested in doing that but I still was playing drums in bands so it wasn't um, wasn't a real game changer for me until somebody asked me to come sing on some demos in the studio and that became that band Uncle Duke I had and then from there it was uh, became Candlebox like a year later and I've been stuck with this job ever since <laughs> so I didn't realize you were a drummer that makes some sense in terms of um, the way you approach vocals, it's very, it's rhythm specific. And mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's interesting. I, I often find that uh, former drummers make very interesting singers and guitar players because they approach it from a rhythm standpoint, as opposed to just chords or notes. Yeah. You know, it's, it, 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 it really is. Um, it's a different thing, man. Um, and I've noticed it over the years of, you know, doing what I do. I approach every single song I write from a from a uh, rhythm perspective first. That's where I start. Um, Steven Tyler was a drummer. Chris Cornell, when I first saw Soundgarden, he was playing drums and singing. They were a three-piece. Um, you know, the list goes on and on and on uh, of, of singers that, you know, started behind drums. Dave Grohl, for God's sakes, you know. Um, they, they start behind this kind of rhythm sense, and you can hear it in everything um, that they do, uh, especially Steven Tyler and the way that, that, um, that he works, um, lyric and, and, and melody, uh, he just constantly weaving it in and out of, um, of drum beats and grooves. And, and even with the country record he released, it still, it still had that kind of element of finding the right place to put those words in between that drum beat to kind of give it a little bit of a kick. Whereas country music's never really been that way. You know, not that I'm a fan of what he's doing in the country world, mm -hmm. um, but still being able to tell that that's, he still writes around that kind of um, rhythmic sense is great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, where, where was, uh, where did you start your first band and, and what were those, I guess, bands like, what kind of music were you guys doing? And <clears throat> Uh, my first band was a punk band. Um, that was in, um, that, well, I was playing drums and that would have been in Seattle. I just moved to Seattle. I was um, 14. Um, 
you know, friend's basement. Um, I met this kid at school, Matt. Um, it was really into the same kind of punk rock that I was into. Um, and we just decided to start a band. I, we were called Radical Youth Penis Brigade. Um, <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> that's, that's a lot. Stupid. Such a stupid name. I mean, you know, you're a kid, so you like the word penis is funny and everything. Um, right, right. It's still funny. Uh, yeah, it is. We still draw them on walls. Uh, but <clears throat> yeah, that was my first band. Um, and then um, that turned into a band called Dolly's Opera, um, which was kind of more influenced by the um, Roxy Music kind of um, pop punk aesthetic, um, country life, and, you know, that sort of. We really were. I loved Roxy Music and Brian Ferry, and then um, Dolly's Opera as in Salvador Dolly. Um, and then um, that kind of became a little bit more pop. Um, I was around 17 when that kind of shifted more into the Bet Noir, Brian Ferry kind of world. Um, and I started playing beats that were a little more um, Smiths and Cure and. Um, Blow Monkeys and a lot of that kind of English pop um, style music. Uh, I started switching up my drumming to that just to kind of, you know, fit for what the guys that were singing with us were doing. And, and then um, I think I stopped playing in that band when I was like 17. I didn't really have anybody I was playing with for a while um, until my buddy Rick called me up and said, Hey, I've got these demos. I want you to sing on. That was when I was 19. That became. Uncle Duke, and then uh, became Candlebox when I was 21. So uh, that's kind of when I just stopped playing drums. I still play drums in the studio. I still write around drums, like, you know, when I'm working with Dave. Um, I'll sit down and kind of show him where I, you know, come from with the rhythmic sense of the song. But I don't play as much as I would like to, that's for sure. I really miss it. So that original Candlebox lineup, it was... Um... You and Scott, you were playing guitar and singing, and he was playing drums, and then you added Peter and Barty after that? Is that how the it went down? No, I wasn't playing guitar. I was just singing. Oh, just singing. Uh, I okay. I, yeah, I didn't pick up guitar until I was about um, 26. Oh, okay. Um, so I was just I was just singing for that. It was a guy named Rick Vaughn, uh, who was a producer engineer at Reciprocal Studios in Seattle. Um, it was a great guitar player and had several bands that he had played in um, around the city and it was a very well-known guitar player and an incredible guitar player. <clears throat> um, Scott on drums because Rick you know, asked me like do you know any drummers and I'm like yeah this guy Scott who played in this band called The First Thought and Sky Cries Mary and all these other bands. So Scott came in and we had this bass player named Perry, uh, Perry Alfairness, which I don't know who knew Perry or how we knew Perry or how he even started playing with this. Maybe Rick knew him from the studio or he had worked with another band in Seattle and um, and Rick was like, oh, you know, this guy Perry can play with us. But he was, Perry's one of those kind of really busy bass players, kind of uh, um, mainly influenced by like a Jaco Pasteri and, and, you know, um, I guess maybe kind of Flea and cats like that just really always wanted to play stuff, sort of bass player, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and and um, that was like for a year and a half and then Rick left to go back to work at Reciprocal because I don't think, you know, anything was really happening with, uh, with us. We were playing very, you know, random gigs around town and nothing real serious. And so 
Scott called Kelly Gray, who he had been in um, some metal band from the 80s with. Um, and Kelly, he asked Kelly knew a guitar player. And Kelly's like, yeah, this guy Pete, that I paint houses with. Um, Pete came down to the studio. We wrote a couple songs that first day that he was with us. Um, we played one gig uh, about two months later, and then Pete fired Perry. Um, and then I went to high school with Barty, and I called Barty, the bass player, and said, hey, you want to come jam with us? And he first day, and he came in, he brought um, the bass lines for Far Behind and You, and that was when kind of the whole thing really started. We changed the name to Candlebox about six months later. So those songs that you guys were writing in that period, is that what turns into the recordings that get you signed to Maverick? Yeah, we had uh, we had written like nine or ten songs. One of them is, is actually from from the demo tape is from that is on that movie Airheads with um, Adam Sandler and Steve Scanny. Uh, a song called "Can't Give In," which is like a total B-side kind of bad version of blues. And yeah, we had we had like eight songs. We did this red demo tape, and then when we got signed to Maverick, we had written you know another like six or seven. So we we went into the studio to make the album. We dropped quite a few songs from the red tape, um, and then we used the demo versions of "You and Far Behind" from that demo tape for the album because we just couldn't recreate them um, from from that demo. Um, hmm. The label felt it. The, the original versions were better, which I agree um, they were. And we had done them at Bob Lang Studio uh, in Seattle, which is you know infamous and notorious and, and crazy and rad and cool and nutty place uh, in North Seattle where we recorded. And you know it was one of those original kind of had the really nice Studer tape deck, the really nice um, API console and. Uh, so the, the demos were great and Kelly, our producer who produced the first album that did the demos for us was a, an amazing engineer and, and had, you know, really great ears. So the, those demos weren't garage version demos. They were, you know, as you can listen to the first album, those, those are far behind in you are the demo versions from that red tape. So that was done in 1991. So we need to we need to dig into this a little bit here because we've talked to a number of artists over the years about the early '90s and and what that was like in terms of dealing with label the whining and dining that went on with bands that were, <laughs> were getting were getting signed to uh, labels and I'm wondering what your experience like you know Maverick was a, a a newer label that was Madonna's sort of imprint at Warner right that she could do what she wanted and I think. Uh, was like her management was involved with that, and how did you end up getting hooked up with them? Yeah, Freddie um, 
<clears throat> Madonna had, I think because Prince had started kind of his vanity label, um, Madonna wanted one. And Freddie had approached, um, he was managing Lionel Conway, Madonna, and he had just left Michael Jackson, I think like two years prior. Uh, Freddie Demand, and um, he approached originally Lionel Con or uh, Lionel Richie about doing the label. Lionel wasn't interested, um, so he went to Madonna, and um, basically said, "Look, I, I want to start this. I think it'd be great for you." And um, I, I think it was like something like ten million dollars uh, is what she had to put up to start the label, and then Warner Brothers matched it. Um, they were obviously uh, interested in what was happening in Seattle, what was happening in Chicago. Um, a lot of the, the New York scene, but because Nirvana, uh, had, had come out so strong with, um, Nevermind and, and, you know, Bleach and Sub Pop was doing so well with kind of all their bands. They focused their attentions on, on Seattle. There was a band that they were interested in, um, before us called Green Apple Quickstep, who, oh. uh, which, yeah, they were amazing, great friends of ours. We used to do a lot of shows with them and stuff. Um, and they, they were more interested in Green Apple because we, at the time, our bass player was only 20. Uh, you couldn't play a bar in Seattle uh, unless you were 21. So we had to play kind of like these all-ages venues or venues outside of the city where the police weren't really kind of frequenting to check IDs on you know musicians and stuff. So our first show in the city at a bar was for a showcase for BMI, um, which was in September of 92. Uh, so, you know, everybody was playing around the city. There were all these shows happening. Um, a lot of the bands were, you know, getting signed, getting picked up. There was a lot of attention on Sweetwater. There was an, an enormous amount of attention on Green Apple Quickstep because they were kind of that, you know, interesting butthole surfers kind of punk rock, pop rock band. Um, there was a band called Easy that had a lot of interest. Um, Carmine, uh, some of the other bands that played with us around that time. Uh, um, Fire Ants, which was Kevin Wood um, from uh, Andy Wood's brother, mm -hmm. his band, which was great. Um, but yeah, we, we got asked to do the showcase and we they put us on first. We went out at seven o'clock and there were three labels that approached us after the show that wanted to fly us to LA. Uh, none of which were Maverick. Um, and we got flown down by uh, SPK EMI and played a showcase at Club Lingerie. And that's where Guy saw us, Guy Siri. Uh, apparently his attorney had told him that, you know, he needed to see us, um, that, that we were in town and, and you should go see this band if you want somebody from Seattle. Because Green Apple Quickstep at the time was being very wishy-washy because they were managed by Kelly Curtis. And Kelly was um, obviously managing Pearl Jam and he had a strong staff of really independent thinkers when it came to what was happening with the Seattle music scene. So they were being a bit wishy-washy with Maverick about signing. So they came into our showcase and the first song, um, Pete broke a string. Um, we had one guitar with us. He had to change the string. The monitors were feeding back. I got pissed off and kicked all the monitors off the stage because the sound guy wouldn't pay attention to them. And he just, you know, so we kind of felt that we blew it and um, that it was a bad show and that we were going to, you know, basically fly home and that was kind of going to be it. And I think that um, Guy had seen that there was something um, a little bit different about us than all the other bands that were coming out of Seattle and asked us to um, come meet with Freddie. And we did. And that kind of the next step was they flew up and met with us. Um, 
I think like December of 92 and asked us to re record two more songs for him um, to see where we were going. And that's when we did Blossom and Mother's Dreams. And um, yeah, we got signed like, I think that January 5th or something of 93 and our record came out in July of 93. So it was a uh, rather quick, I mean, two years of just being a band, actually three years of you know being a band and, and you know, trying to make it. Um, it's funny because, you know, everybody always thought that we were from LA because, you know, the back of our CD said, you know, management, Linda Getz, Los Angeles, California. Um, but, you know, we were a Seattle band. We just were too young to play in the city. And, and that's why nobody really knew about us. Um, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a strange thing to be kind of the, you know, the outcast band from a city that you grew up in, you know, Pete and, Pete and Scott and Barty were all born in Seattle. Um, or raised there from the age of one, you know, so it was kind of weird for everybody to say we weren't really a Seattle band when, you know, a lot of bands were moving there. There's a band called Best Kissers in the World, I think, that moved to Seattle from Arizona to get signed. And, you know, a lot of that happened. But yeah, we were, we were from there. We were just a lot, a lot younger in age than, you know, uh, Eddie and Chris and Lane and Jerry. Those guys are all in their 50s. You know, we're all like 44, 45, and 46 years old. So, um, a lot of difference, you know, in age when you're, you know, 14 and some of the bands that you're listening to are, you know, 20, um, and you're trying to make music at that age. So, uh, it was strange, but it was cool. You know, I mean, a lot of whining and dining, like, you know, like you said, um, I think when we flew to, when we flew to LA with EMI, they took us to some crazy restaurant. I can't remember. I don't even think it's around anymore. Um, La Dome or some shit like that. And then, the next day, Sony Records Publishing took us to Magic Mountain for, you know, the afternoon to, we want to sign you. And I mean, it was just a trip, you know, and you're kind of like, what the fuck's happening? I'm, you know, you're a 22-year-old <laughs> kid yeah. just trying to figure out your life. And and um, next thing you know, you're, you're being taken all these places that you, you wanted to go your whole life as a kid, and now you're, you're seeing them, and it just tri trips you out. So based on your history, it sounds like you're – a pretty significant music fan you know tons of different kinds of music if you're living in seattle through the 80s you got a band in the late 80s early 90s what is your perception of what's going on at that time i mean does it at what point does it sink in of in terms of overall like uh, music history like you're watching something significant happening well i don't know because you know living in san antonio my first concert was Black Flag, Dead Kennedys, and Butthole Surfers. So, mm -hmm. I and I was also going to high school with Trent House and Michael Kendo, who were in a band called Marching Plague, which is a punk band. And I, I don't know if you guys know anything about the Texas punk scene, but like a lot of those bands, Fearless Iranians from Hell, the Hickoids, um, the Bone Club, like all these great things, you know, were, were there. So I was kind of seeing a similar movement mm -hmm. in San Antonio and Austin, uh, you know, in eighty. 81, 82, 83, being a kid and having, you know, friends that were seniors and driving up to Austin to go skateboarding, going up to Liberty Lunch to see a lot of the shows up there. I was, I was kind of exposed early on to kind of what bands were capable of at a mm -hmm. young age. So when I moved to Seattle in 84, I, I wasn't really shocked at um, kind of how great it was. I was more shocked at the, kind of like the musicianship. Um, being that it wasn't punk, it was this kind of heavy 
acid rock sort of thing. Like, you know, seeing Soundgarden for the first time and seeing Screaming Trees and, and seeing um, The Accused and Grunt Truck and like a lot of those early bands and like even the first time I saw Nirvana, you know, it was, you knew that it was kind of going to blow up because it was more popular musically than punk rock was. Mm -hmm. um, but you, I don't think I really expected it to, you know, kind of become what it did. Um, that didn't really kind of sink in, I think, until I was working with Susan Silver, who was managing Soundgarden at the time. She was Chris Cornell's girlfriend. And, and I was working with her at a shoe store um, called Flubog uh, in Seattle, where I started to kind of realize how important the music scene was. That's kind of when I started to realize that, oh, this is, this is actually a lot bigger than what was happening in Texas. Because um, the guys would come in and, you know, get their flyers. And Susan, Flubog was on the corner of First Avenue and, and um, Pine, or Pine, I can't remember, Pine Street. First and Pine or First and Wall, I can't remember what street it's on. Uh, and her office was um, behind Flubox. She was living in this apartment building, which now is a hotel called the Inn at the Market. Um, so she would bring the flyers in from her office in through the back door of Flubog. And then the guys would come in and say, hey, I'm here to pick up my flyers or whatnot. So that's like when I first met Andy Wood and uh, Lane and Chris and all those guys was when they would come in to get the flyers for their shows. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of like my my new exposure to um to the seattle music scene and some of the you know the rock stars or the artists that um were kind of really going to be making a, a difference in that city's musical community mm -hmm. um so i think you know being exposed to a different type of it in san antonio kind of allowed me to understand the value of it uh if you will when i moved to uh, to seattle at the age of 14. Right. You kind of knew, you knew it was possible. Whereas if you'd come from another scene and just not really seen anything going on, it, it probably would have taken you, uh, like a, a hammer to the head when it started to happen. Like, Oh my God, this is really happening. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, is there any performances? You mentioned a bunch of bands that you saw uh, around that time, just cause it's such an important part of our, our story that we tell on the show. Are there any performances that really stand out that, you know, when you, you think back that, were just unbelievable whether the bands are well known or or not oh in seattle man there, there was a ton i i mean there were so many um screaming trees uh um at was it called the okay no the central amazing blood circus the first mookie blaylock show um mother love bone uh, at the vogue you know malfunction I mean, so many malfunctioned shows that were just unbelievable. Um, they used to play this shoe store called Luna on Broadway, which was rad. Um, the first time I saw Mud Honey, um, I realized what punk rock kind of was supposed to be. At that, you know, you'd seen a lot of it in the Texas. The Texas punk rock scene was so much different than like the West Coast punk rock scene. But Mud Honey was just so visceral and like engaging. Uh, the audience into destruction, which I just thought was rad. Um, a couple of the green, the green apple quick step shows that I saw, you, you never knew what Ty was going to do. You know, 21 year old kid that was just fucking out of his mind. Um, of course, Soundgarden when Chris was playing drums, um, a lot of the bumper shoot shows. The first time I saw Allison Chains, we used to rehearse next to them at this place called the music bank, <clears throat> which actually I think they called their box set the music bank. Yeah. 
yeah, that was that was a rehearsal studio that we all kind of rehearsed that out in um, the Ballard area. And then um, they were called Diamond Lie at first, and our room is right next to theirs. And um, you know, listening kind of to, to them change their, you know, from the from the hair metal thing they were doing in '86 and '87 to become a little bit more dark and you know, um, I guess methodical in their songwriting when Lane joined the band. Um, that was kind of interesting to sit next to them. There were bands called Cat Butt, who was an amazing <laughs> band that played several shows. <clears throat> there was, you know, there was a really great underground punk rock scene. <clears throat> so you could, a lot of those clubs that were, that were open when I first moved there, like Gorilla Garden and stuff, they'd all been shut down. So, um, you would go to the university district to, to see, you know, a lot of these bands play at like house parties and stuff. So, a lot of that was where, you know, you would catch some of these great shows. I saw Husker do um, at the University of Washington, and that was mind-blowing show. They were amazing. One of my favorite bands of all time. Um, I, there's just too many to mention. I mean, we'd be talking about, for the next 30 minutes, about all the shows. <laughs> that's good. You know, it's just incredible. And it, that's why, like, you know, people say, tell me about the Seattle scene. I'm like, fuck, it'd take forever. You know, it just was, in a period of three years, the amount of shit that you were able to see it I, you know, I don't even know how anybody could like document how many shows were happening weekly you know what i mean mm. it just was crazy it was just crazy the first time i saw tool you know 19 um 93 they played i think it was 93 they played the rock candy um for the opiate uh kind of tour and i think um undertow was about to come out or and there were like 12 people there, you know, <laughs> and nobody knew who they were in Seattle. It's kind of like, how do you not know who these guys are? It, yeah. You know, uh, and Adam was from the Tri-Cities, the, the guitar players from the Tri-Cities of Washington State. So the only reason I knew about that was because my friend Carrie Wall used to date him. She's like, oh, I'm going to see Adam play tonight. He's playing at, you know, Rock Candy with Tool. And I'm like, oh, Tool, I love that. Opiate record. Let's go. You know, and mm-hmm. no one was at the show. It was rad. Well, so, <laughs> so when you were playing shows like 90, 91 in that area, 92 maybe. Were you guys like doing, going out to like the Midwest in a van or were oh, you pretty it. much just sticking in the Seattle area? Yeah, we were just in Seattle. Okay. Um, we, we, not, we, none of us had money. <clears throat> none of us had money to, you know, rent a van. Um, I think Pete was driving like some sort of uh Celica or something. I don't I, yeah, I didn't even have a car, um, you know, and to get to get in a van and go somewhere, no one knew about it. Like our whole game plan was play the city, build a, a bit of a following, and then go and play shows. We did go and play a few shows in western uh, or eastern Washington, like at, at Wazoo, the university there. We would go down to Portland, play shows. Um, we'd go up to Vancouver and play shows. Um, and sometimes Idaho, um, but really it was about staying in the, in the city. And when we did these shows to go to these other towns, we generally had to go with another band. So we would go with Sean Smith and Regan had a band called Satchel. So we would go with Satchel to Eastern Washington play a show, or we would go with <clears throat> the guys from, uh, easy, the free old brothers can go up to Vancouver and play with them or, um, we would go down to Central Washington with um, what was Miles Kennedy's band called um, Mayfield Four. 
yes, <clears throat> we'd go down and play a show with, with Mayfield Four down in Central Washington or something. But really, that was like going with another band because none of us had a car or a, a vehicle big enough. Then we had this friend that bought this um, like 76 or, or 82 Vanagon um, that we were able to kind of throw our shit in and he would drive us to um, Portland or something like that. But then that thing broke down and we didn't have a van then. And then he bought another one. And um, So really, it was just about how much of a following can we, can we build in Seattle till we can make some money to actually get a band on our own and go play other shows, at which point we ended up getting signed. So that's when we, we ended up, in 93, we actually did, we leased a van, and we did um, a van run from like April till February of um, 94. We were still in a van when we were touring with um, Rush, and then we got a bus halfway through the Rush tour just because the traveling distances were so far and too hard for us to drive. So, um, yeah, we were, we were in a van for almost a year on the road on that first record. So you, you mentioned a little bit the process of making the first record. It sounds like Kelly Gray was, a, was pretty instrumental in, in getting those demos done and ultimately he produces the final record. What's the what's the process to get that done, and, and what's uh, I guess Maverick's take on everything? You know, do they get out of the way and let you guys do your thing, or is it a lot more involved than that? Well, for the first record, um, since we had everything done, um, it was just a matter of you know going to the studio and retrack everything. They didn't really kind of stand over our shoulders, um, except for when it came to picking you know Far Behind and You and saying you know these new sure. versions aren't as you know kind of as intimate as the as the originals um so you know it was relatively easy i think where they kind of started to really get involved with what we were doing was when it came to the videos and um you know who we were working with and you know kind of what type of imagery we wanted for the videos and stuff of course you know you have to work with sam bear because he's worked with nirvana and he's worked with all these fucking bands and you're kind of like okay whatever um okay um but, you know, it was, when it came to the, the record, we were kind of just left, left alone, which was great. Um, the second record was a little bit different. Uh, I, I wish that they had spent a little more time focused on us with that record um, because we were, we were not in any way, shape or form ready to make Lucy. Um, but yeah, the first, the first album we were just kind of like, yeah, go do your thing. You're doing it yeah. the right way, so whatever. Cool. The yeah, demo it, was so good that it was just, okay, Kelly made the demo. He can produce. You guys just make this a yeah. little better, and you're good. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, when I look back through the tour history, there's a, I don't know if you're familiar, there's a website called setlist.com that lists basically uh -huh. every show that every band has ever played. And it's real good for, like, if you can't remember a show that you went to, and you're like, I think I went to see such and such a band in 94. Where would they have played that I've seen them? And you'll find the show. Um, you guys were basically on tour from the point that that looks like it, at least, from like when the album came out till around Christmas of 1994, which is like 17 or 18 months. I mean, it's a long time, not continuing like, every single day, but it, it looked like you guys were pretty much playing shows either in the States or traveling outside the country. How quickly did you guys have to get into the studio 
um, after you got off tour? Were you writing on the road, or did you like have to go into the studio and write to do the second album? Yeah, we we they they wanted us in right away. Um, yeah, I mean it was it was it was not good. Um, we were exhausted. Um, you know, we had when we wrapped up the last kind of tour with the Flaming Lips um, in '94. It would have been nice for us to take a year off um, and just kind of regroup um, and you know get our bearings right because you know we'd, we'd been thrown into this whirlwind of success um and money and travel and you know girlfriends and cars and houses and you know all the shit that comes along with making money um we, we uh, you know a lot of the a lot of the i guess not taking for granted your career got taken for granted um so we we started writing for Lucy. I want to say like January of of '95. I mm-hmm. mean, we 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 got a rehearsal studio out in um, uh, on the east side, out by where Pete was living, in an area called Issaquah. Um, we built it out to what we needed it for, um, you know, recording and stuff. We had picked up a couple eight app players and, and things where we could actually record our demos and get them ready for, for listening. And I remember we were listening to um, uh, failure a lot at the time. Um, I was because I was such a uh, huge fan of, um, of that band and, and um, Ken Andrews that I, I thought that like bringing in some sort of inspiration would kind of spark something for the band. And, and I think it was a fantastic planet album that, um, that we, we were kind of listening to her. Maybe it was the, oh no, it was Year of Year the, uh, was it Year of the Frog or what's it called? Uh, oh, I think you're thinking of um, Magnified. Is that what it is? Well, because the frog on the cover. Yeah, that has the frog on the yeah. cover because uh, yeah, Fantastic Magnified. Planet came out in 96, so it would have been the year after. Yeah. Although I think so they Magnified, recorded yeah. it. I think they recorded it in 95. So their demos or their recording might've been floating around out there. Cause it said it took them a year and a half. We had Kelly Scott, the drummer on last year. Oh, Kelly's great. Yeah. And, um, he talked to us about how they were in limbo for like a year and a half on that record. Like they'd finished recording it and then it just sat. Uh, yeah. For, we had, I know, I knew we had, um, we had the demos, um, because Grover, one of the Warner brothers reps said, uh, it was like, if you guys heard the new record, cause I was such a big fan of theirs. Um, but I don't think we were, I, we were listening to Magnified and, okay. you know, we were trying to, I remember talking with the guys going, you know, we need to make a conscious, you know, direction effort decision for this album. Um, you know, none of us were feeling like we wanted to obviously rewrite far behind and you, because that's, those songs happened so magically, you know, the, like I said, the first day that Barty, the bass player came down to, to try out for the band he brought those two those two songs, um, so we hadn't written anything on the road. We played a couple songs that we that um, we thought you know we may use for the new record. Um, ended up not liking them in the, in the rehearsals, and so we really started from scratch. And I think that was kind of the first moment I realized. Um, kind of my role in the band was going to be something a little bit different than I had thought it was going to be, which was I was going to have to help to direct the band. Um, 
Now I hit, you know, I write all the lyrics, I write all the melodies, I write the majority of the choruses um, and stuff musically. Um, but we always did stuff collaboratively. And when it came time to to make Lucy, I, no one was ready. Um, it really is a record that we should not have made. And um, I mean, you know, we I think we even went to the studio to record it. I think we started recording it in. April uh, of 95 um, or maybe even March of 95, um, which is just way too early. And I, uh, yeah, it just was, it was a really, really, really hard record to make. There were a lot of moments in the studio fighting and arguing and throwing shit. And um, there were members of the band that didn't want to be there that weren't telling anyone they didn't want to be there. Um, Guys wouldn't show up you know, to record when we we're supposed to, we'd book the studio to be there from 12 o'clock on. They wouldn't show up. So I would be left there to record stuff by myself with John Plum, the engineer, which we did, um, best friend. Uh, and what's the other one we did, you know, Oh, and butterfly, we did those two songs by ourselves. And then the guys came in and they were pissed off that, you know, we had recorded them without them. So we had to re-record them with them. I mean, all sorts of stupid childish shit, you know, it was a really fucking dark period, man. <laughs> to quote Dewey Cox, it was just like, fuck, why are we struggling so hard at this? And it was just because there were so many distractions as a band. Well, and the, the schedule, I mean, I think a lot of bands in the 90s, you know, there's the infamous sophomore slump. And sometimes it's not a slump, it's that you just don't have the time that you have to put into the first record. I mean, you have a lot of time to make the first record when you're a band, and you don't have that when you're on a major label. You get off the road, and it's like, get back in the studio. And Bush had a huge debut, five huge singles put out the second record with Steve Albini. It's not nearly what the first record is. Sponge had like three singles off their first record. Huge record. Second yeah. record, they tried to make a little bit of a stylistic change. Doesn't sound the same. You know, a lot of bands, especially like 93, 94, when those records came out, huge four or five single deep records. And then the second one would be out two years later because that's the, you know, the record label process. Yeah. And it just, it killed a lot of the momentum with those bands because they just weren't ready to go in the studio. Like you said, if you had a year, you probably would have made the record you wanted to make as opposed to making the record that needed to be made at that time. It's, it's exactly what, what happened. You're, you're absolutely right. And, you know, I, I remember flying to Los Angeles at one point and just sitting to a guy, to, to guy and Freddie, look, we're not ready. You know, um, we have to, we have to, stop recording right now and um they're like well you know we're on schedule we've got everything set up with warner brothers and you know we, we need you guys to finish the record i'm like you you're fucking asking us to kill ourselves to shoot ourselves in the foot because i'm like this record is not fucking ready and um yeah it was hard 
And, but that was exactly what it was. It was just the pressures of you had to, you had to get it done. You had to get it out. You had to follow up. You know, they had, they had their reasons, obviously the, you know, momentum and all that stuff is flowing, but, um, that's why we always took more time than needed after that record to make our albums because, you know, I just, I refuse to make a record until I'm, I'm feeling that I'm ready to make a record. When does this record come out and, and and when do they find Atlantis and put that record out? Because at that point, I mean, they've got, uh, in some ways, I don't know, does her success potentially take some pressure off of you guys? Because, I mean, you're their, you're their big act at this point, right? I mean, you are it. So I could kind of see them kind of really panicking to get you guys another record out. And then they get her and she has huge success. Does that help <laughs> or hinder you or does it affect you at all? I think, you know, when Alanis came out, um, she came out right around the same time as our record was released. I think we were released at fourth quarter, October 3rd, and she came out, she came out in September or August of 95. I can't remember. Um, September sounds, because she had I hit into, was, into, into, into 96. Yeah. yeah, that was a two-year um, album that was top of the charts for like two years. Yeah. So I, I want to say she came out prior to us, which was great because I remember um, Lindy, our manager, calling and saying, you know, if you want, we can push the release of Lucy back because they're really focused on Alanis. Um, we can ask to push it back, um, at, you know, at which point I said, well, let's just remix the fucking record. And, you know, and, and um but nobody was having that. Maverick wasn't having it and stuff. So it didn't really, it didn't really free up anything for us until, you know, she was so fucking huge that people were like, who the fuck's Candlebox? Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. which is fine with me. Um, yeah. You know, because um, no one was paying attention to our record anyways. Um, you know, radio was playing it. There was uh, a lot of um, support, but there was no real financial um uh, record sales support happening. Um, the label wasn't giving us tour support for the record because we, you know, we were making so much money playing our own shows. So they were, they weren't focusing any dollars on marketing of the album. So I think the only people that knew that we had a record out were really people that were coming to see us play mm -hmm. because Warner brothers and Maverick were really focused on a lot of more set. So, um, that kind of hurt us because, we expected a big push. I know that there was a um, there was a, a initial order of like you know over half a million records. I think we shipped we shipped gold, um, but the record still hasn't hit uh, a million sales mm -hmm. to, today to this day. Um, you know, which I think you know isn't isn't only because Maverick didn't pay attention. I mean, you know. To be honest, that I only think there are two good songs on the fucking record, but um, I think it has everything to do with both parties are very responsible for the, the failure of Lucy. It's um, in revisiting it, even sonically, it doesn't hold up to the first record. Would you agree with that? A song like Simple Lessons, which I think is one of the stronger songs on the record, mix wise, is much muddier and, and less punchy than the first record. Well, co cocaine's a hell of a drug, and that's the problem. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, if, the reason that, that Lucy sounds like dirt, um, like absolute 
shit is because Kelly and Kelly was fucking high the entire time we were making the record. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I didn't know that because I wasn't seeing him, but once or twice during the sessions, like I said, I would go and work with John bump and then Kelly and Pete and Barty would come in later in the evening and do their stuff when I wasn't there because it was easier to, to do drugs without me being around because I didn't do drugs. I was a drinker, but you know, I, I, I wasn't into cocaine or anything like that. Um, it's not really my thing. So for them to be able to hide from me was easy. And so that's why it, it you know, it's, that's one of the reasons I, you know, flew to fucking California and said, look, this record just is terrible, you know, and it needs to stop, it needs to stop. But you know, uh, when you're doing drugs and you're making albums, they're, you know, it's, it's never going to be right. And, and I know that Pete has several times, you know, said um, that he takes full responsibility for the failure of Lucy because he just wasn't mentally there. I mean, he's sober now 14 years and, and he can look back and uh, realize, you know, his role in kind of that, the destructive nature of that album. No, it does not hold up sonically. Um, Kelly was, you know, his ears, I think, were just fried from, from the drugs and, and, you know, trying to mix, instead of mixing at London Bridge, where we had done the first album and he understood the room and, and knew what, you know, what it, the console did and how those, those, you know, monitors or everything sounded, he decided he wanted to mix it at Bad Animals, which was an entirely different beast. It was, a, you know, a different console. It was a, uh, uh, an SSL console, um, you know, a room that was tuned for a different ear, um, all sorts of things went wrong with that record. I mean, you know, I'm in the hopes that I can get those masters back and remix that entire fucking record. That's what I'm trying to do right now with um, some of the laws that have been exposed about the music business, where if you're a work for hire, you're entitled to get your masters back. So we're actually having an attorney look into that. And if I can get the masters for Lucy back, I'm going to fix that fucking record because um, I don't like it because the way it sounds. I don't like it because the way certain things were played. Um, I don't like it because of all the negative memories and things that I have about the recording of that record that, you know, I just hate. Um, and it's unfortunate because I think there could be some great songs on there. And I think that had we taken the time to understand what we were really good at as a band, mm. um, it would have been a better record. But, you know, like I said, drugs and alcohol are, you know, a terrible influence on, on music. And, um, you know, there's some musicians that are capable of, of being great on it. I don't think Candlebox is. Mm. <laughs> you know, I don't think we're great on under the influence of drugs and alcohol, that's for sure. Before we leave this record, I, I just wanted to mention the song Best Friend, which I think is... Huh? Uh, at the time was a favorite going back and revisiting it. I think it holds up yeah. really, really well. I was, I didn't realize um, that it sounds like you recorded that kind of on your own. And then are you seeing the band went back and kind of retract things? Can you talk about that song a little bit? Where yeah. We, if I, the original version is amazing. It was one of those points in the record where I was angry that no one was there. John was angry that no one was there. He and I were, you know, five, six songs a day, getting shit done. Um, and, um, and I had this, I had this song that I, that I wanted to work on. And, uh, I had just started playing guitar, you know, as like a guitar player, um, about, you know, 
halfway through the first album, picking up acoustics and learning how to um, kind of like chord progressions and how things work. I can't play solos or anything like that. I'm a very basic guitar player. Um, but I had this this thing that I wanted to do, and um, and I wanted to do it kind of like Motorhead does, you know, the way Motorhead recorded and the way that a lot of the New York punk bands recorded, um, which was I wanted to track the song guitar first against, uh, you know, the drum beat that I had in my head. Um, so, and John Plum is a drummer. And um, so he's like, well, let's go out and jam it out and see what's going to happen. And, and, and if, it, you know, if we like it, I'll lay down the drum beat and then we'll just do the, the guitars over the top of that. And I was like, okay, cool. So uh, we ended up figuring out the song and how we wanted to do it. Um, and so he's like, okay, well, all you got to do is he's like, I'm going to track the, the song. He goes, you sit in here with the guitar and the microphone. You you sing it and play to me while I'm, I'm out there tracking drums. He goes, just hit the red button on the thing and, you know, we'll let the tape roll until we get started. I was like, okay, cool. So we tracked it that way. We got the drums down and then we took every single amp that we had in the studio and we put them all in the big live room and then we mic'd up um, all the cabs and 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 figured out, I think the switching system that we figured out for so that we could run them all at the same time, um, you know, it took us a bit to figure out. But I mean, I'm ta we're talking like, this is within three hours, we getting all this shit done. And we tracked the guitars and there's like just all this amazing feedback because you've got, you know, you've, you've got every single kind of guitar amplifier you can turn to 11 and you know standing in a room like that the amount of sonic frequencies that are kind of fighting one another because we didn't really concern ourselves with how the, the tone of the amps were we wanted something that was really incredibly loud right. um and and so we tracked the guitars uh and then i laid the bass line down and then went in and sang vocals and the song was done in like three hours um and then of course pete and barty and scott no one shows up that day um and then when it came time for Maverick to come listen to some of the songs, John had taken, taken it upon himself to mix that version of Best Friend. And Pete and Barty and Scott had never heard the song. So when Freddie and Guy came in, that's the first song that John played him. And the demo version, which was just he and I, was rad. And it was fucking loud. And I was, ex you know, I was excited because I was like, oh, it sounds great. I can't believe, you know, he did it. And Pete was pretty pissed off um, because he had never heard it. He didn't play on it. He didn't think it should have been played for Maverick. He was mad that John hadn't played for him first. And, you know, rightly so. I think there was a lot of stuff happening, you know, to spite one another at that point because John's frustration is being, you know, considered an engineer rather than a producer on the record, even though he was doing everything. Um, you know, he was like, well, fuck you. You weren't here. We did it. You know, there was a massive fight. Freddie wanted that to be the first single. Um, Pete was like, no fucking way. You know, we're going to, we're going to do it. It's going to be <laughs> at the bands. Wow. So we had to re-record the song with them. And, um, and to this day, like John's like, he, I called him last week and I was like, I want you to find that fucking demo version. Yeah. So he's like scouring, you know, he owns London Bridge Studios now. And he's like looking through that tapes and doing his best to try and find it because it's one of those versions of a song where, you know, you, you just kind of, it would, if they would have just let us put it on the record like that, if, if Pete and Barty and Scott, it would have been the first single and it would have been something that everybody really would have loved. Um, but again, you know, that's, that, those are those fights you have as a band 
in a studio because you're angry with one another and wow. and uh, and it ended up ruining the record you know i uh but if i can ever find that version i'm telling you man i'll, I'll say that you guys it is so fucking good it's so loud and it's so cool and it's totally punk rock and it's like it's the shit's out of tune and but the aggressive nature of it in comparison to the one that was released is 10 times i mean it just it was so much better than the version that we re-recorded hmm that's really interesting because you know re again revisiting the record at the time it made sense why simple lessons was the first single because it seemed to progress from the first most logically you know as a song it had the feel we everybody was familiar with going back and revisiting my take on it was wow if you guys would have came out with best friend first it would have been kind of that pivot that happened for pearl jam you know when verses came out yeah. and, and they yeah. they presented themselves you know as a completely different band on that record and it kind of opened up the possibilities of what they could do going forward of like we're not just the 10 sound now we can do we can do punk rock stuff you know yeah and i think it would have done the same thing to you guys my assumption was that the label would, didn't wouldn't want to do that because it was so different than the first record but you're saying that's not the case it was pete no pete pete and um and scott um barney was kind of cool because he liked the fact that the baseline you know was in six it countered to you know, the, the structure of the, of the rest of the song, but I was like, it was really cool. But Barty was punk rock like me, you know, we grew up on the clash. We grew up in that, um, in that world of, of loving, you know, really great punk rock and shit being out of tune and shit not being right. And Pete and Scott were perfectionists, you know, and there was no way I was going to be the only guitar player on a song, you know, and there was no way that those drums were going to be played by somebody other than Scott Mercado. And that was really unfortunate, you know, because it shouldn't fucking matter. You know, it, mm -hmm. if, if, if it's a band, it's a band. Whoever plays the shit live is in the band. You know, it doesn't matter who's writing the song or who's playing on it. But that was really uh, hard for the two of them to swallow. They weren't having it. And, um, and yeah, we had to re-record it. And I agree, you know, Maverick really wanted, when Freddie heard that, he was like, this is fucking amazing. You know, but Freddie grew up in in a in a world musically where artists needed to change. They needed to push the envelope. I mean, the shit that he had done with Michael Jackson with the Thriller record and and you know uh, off the wall and everything that he had learned from Quincy Jones. He was like, this is the perfect movement for this band. This is the perfect way for you guys to come back as a different. You know, I mean, he really mm -hmm. tried to calm down the situation um, and get Pete to understand that you know it was okay, but. Um, you know, Pete wasn't having it. And again, you know, and it's all because, you know, drugs and alcohol. It's not because Pete's an asshole. It's not because Scott's an asshole. There were just, it, it was just the wrong time for us to be making a record. Yeah.
So did that experience then going into Happy Pills, is that not the impetus, but is that sort of the groundwork laying for Scott to leave the band um, and for Dave to come in and play drums? Well, Scott left just because he was unhappy. I don't, you know, I heard years later that Scott had been talking about leaving Candlebox when, you know, we were touring with Metallica. Um, and I, you know, Scott's never admitted that to me. He's never, you know, told that to me, but people that he was, that he was talking to at the time. And I even said to him, you know, at one point when he, when he, cause he walked into the studio, we were trying to write for happy pills. He wasn't coming to our rehearsal studio. Um, and one day he was like an hour late and I just said, fuck guys, we got to get to work. So I started playing drums and he walked in and saw me and he goes, he goes, that's it. And he walks over and he takes the cymbals off the drum set and goes, I quit. And like turn around and walked out of the studio. And we're like, wait, what? What? <laughs> you know, we ended up chasing. We're like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And like, he gets in his car and drives off. And we never heard from him again. He he scheduled something with our guitar tech to come get his gear out of the studio. Like, I mean, it was really like, you just got divorced. I just caught you, you know, fucking your best friend in our house, kind of wife sort of thing. It was so weird, man. And we didn't talk for years. Um, but it was because he was, he was unhappy and he did not, he didn't want to be in the band. And instead of just, you know, being a grown up and coming in and saying, guys, look, I don't want to do this anymore. I know it's going to put you in a precarious position or in in an awkward position or an uncomfortable position, but I need to leave. Um, it would have been fine. Uh, you know, we would have been okay. We, do you you want to take a break? Do you want to come back at some point? But instead it was like, fuck you. I quit, grab my cymbals and walk out. Um, you know, like a child does, um, it was easy to replace him with Dave. You know, we, we all knew Dave, um, from other projects he was playing in. We had hooked him up with Christopher and Brad with, um, unified theory and stuff like that. So Dave just kind of seemed like the obvious happy pills was a record that took us a long time to write just because we were trying to recover from the failure of Lucy. Um, not so much, you know, Scott Levy or anything like that. It was just, Lucy failed. We were exhausted from touring. Um, another couple bad choices were made, you know, by the band to miss certain tours that we should have done. So there's a lot of like uh, licking of wounds sort of shit happening from 96 to, you know, 98 when we released Happy Pills. Um, just bad shit. And, um, and again, I, I've said it a million times. Candlebox is the happiest fucking accident I've ever had. We should never have succeeded as a band. The only guys in the band who knew one another were me and Scott when we started. And I really didn't even know him. Um, I had met him. We were acquaintances. We were four entirely different fucking human beings that just accidentally had a band that was successful. Mm. So every single record was after that first album was a struggle. Huh. Happy, Happy Pills, it sounds like more of a, you know, an evolution of uh, the band than I think Lucy does, which mm-hmm. Lucy sounds a bit more in a rut. Uh, uh-huh. Do you feel that way about it? Do you feel like it, 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 you know, I guess the conflicts aside, the you guys were where you needed to be musically at that time and the, the way the record came together? you know, was a solid representation of, you know, you guys moving forward. 
I don't know. Um, I think Happy Pills was a record that, I mean, if, if I could put it on anything, it, it was Dave. Hmm. Dave was so inspiring as a musician that it made it it made it easy to move forward um, with with how Happy Pills was being written because he was such a different musician to Scott, um, and he's actually played on the last three Candlebox records since then, uh, Love Stories and Into the Sun, and of course the new one that's coming out um, because he. He never thought about how to play something. He just played it from the heart. So when we would come in with a song or or just a guitar part, it, he instantaneously built it for us um, because he was so musical. So I don't know if I'm answering your question correctly. Um, yeah. yeah, well, I think there's a rhythmically, there's a, there's a subtle shift um, in the band that's noticeable on the record. Things... Sometimes they swing a little bit more, or you know, there, there's just different feels there. I think the first record is so much everything's like in the pocket and deep, rhythmically, yeah. and kind of held, you know. And that was your sound. That was really cool at the time. But but and then Lucy's kind of a, a repeat of that, except for Best Friend, which is obviously you know in your face and propulsive. And then <clears throat> I think what I'm responding to is Happy Pills. You you sense that rhythmic shift in the band, which starts to open things up a little bit more. Um, yeah, there's a looseness. There's a looseness yeah. to Happy Pills that, that mm-hmm. continues with Into the Sun and Love Stories. And and it's and it was Dave's just his fucking heart and pocket. Like Dave's got the biggest fucking heart when you play mm-hmm. with him as a as a drummer because it's it's just he doesn't use his head at all at all when he's playing mm-hmm. um, and it makes it so easy to write fucking songs and he there are songs on on Hensville that like I'm not a fan of you know like I'm like you know whatever like offerings and um, um, get back and shit like that I'm kind of like eh, you know whatever um, but like so real and look what you've done and stones throw and sometimes and happy pills the song and ten thousand horses and blinders and you know it's a it was and it was a, an album of major growth for us we had several sit down conversations about this about these songs um i made it kind of my i made it I made it a real strong effort to make sure that the guys understood where I was coming from lyrically, um, musically, um, emotionally. I wanted everybody to kind of have an understanding of um, of what we were trying to do. If we were going to try and make a record that was going to somehow bring us back to what we had, you know, in 93, in 94, um, that I wanted everybody to be on the same page. Um, and, and thankfully... Um, Barty and Dave were pretty focused on making that happen and I know that Barty and Dave were happy playing together and, and everybody was happy um, you know playing with, with uh, Dave at the time so it made songwriting with Pete a lot easier as well Pete was still struggling with drugs and alcohol at the time um, but we were able to get more stuff done because the respect of uh, of, of Barty's and Dave's, you know, playing together and, and my songwriting, I think it made it easier for us to knock these songs out. Songs like Sometimes and Stone's Throw Away, which I wrote entirely on my own. Um, you know, and Dave was there to help me kind of, you know, put these 
pieces together and developed in the way I wanted to be developed. There was a different respect that was growing, um, so it made it easier to, to make Happy Pills. Um, and Ron Nevison was, as much as I hate him as a producer and a human being, um, he was really good at keeping us um, directed in the songs um, and, and kind of not letting us lose sight of where we were going with these things. Um, you know, he blew a fucking fortune on the record, which we weren't happy about. But, you know, he, he helped us make a really great record. I think Happy Pills is, is, was a great comeback from Lucy. Um, mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I think we were past the point of uh, people giving a shit at that, at that point. But um, it, well, you know, it, it's one of those albums. Well, I was struck by, you know, a song like It's All Right, which was the first single, right? That sits very, very much, you know, that could sit side by side to what Matchbox 20 released that year. Um, uh -huh. So, and I, you know, I think it's it's actually much better than that. But I mean, in terms of like on the radio, you could hear those two songs, you know, uh, yeah. going, uh, th there's their stuff in, in that. It's all right. Won't you fight me? Where we're at right now, baby It's where we need to be And I can't see things so clearly Through tear-stained eyes Side effects of time thing that i think is so different is that bridge that heavy bridge did you release the single with that bridge in there and which no, i, I they think fucking awesome cut it out. Oh, okay they know <laughs> they fucking maverick you know that's what i like, figured yeah cut it out you know this stupid shit they always did that um you know i, I it was you know freddie was the guy was trying to take over fucking maverick from freddie and you know all that shit was happening so of course Everybody got lost lost in the shuffle with, with that kind of crap. But, you know, there was always that one thing, well, we got to cut that out. We got That has nothing, no relevance to the song. We're like, well, it does if you're a band like us, because that's mm -hmm. what our fans like about us. You know, like if you think about Change as the first single from the first record, had that massive middle section that was totally different than the rest of the song. And the only thing they edited was half the solo when they released it. So, I mean, why take out what our audience you know, admires about us as a band. Um, but, you know, they wanted that crossover right away to Hot AC and, and Top 40 Radio, and, mm -hmm. you know, they, they cut the best part out. In 98, that's that's really gaining momentum, right? I mean, that whole, I don't know, in the show we've referred to it as, uh, was it the third the third wave of grunge? Yeah. Combined, yeah. With, uh, combined with real pop music coming back, you know, the Spice Girls and... Backstreet Boys. You know, and Backstreet Boys are soon... To, to dominate things there's yeah. definitely a shift in, in radio too okay you know let's get back to pop songs and you know it can come from bands that look grungy but at the end of the day you know we're writing pop hits here yeah yeah 
And I'm assuming you guys were feeling some of that pressure as things were changing from the uh, I don't I don't know. I, I think again, Maverick was so fucking distracted that I mean Nick they hired Nick Turzo, the R A and R guy. And you know, Nick was like, These songs are great, let's go make the record and then we go into the studio and guy's like, What are you doing? We don't, we don't like any of these songs and Nick's like, We what the fucking you hired me to be the A and R guy. Mm-hmm. You know? And then they started fighting. Nick quits midway through the fucking you know recording process it, when we we moved down from Sausalito to to LA to finish the album Nick quits we got no A&R guy guys not coming to the studio we don't even know what we're doing finally Ron's just like look let's just make the record we fucking make and we'll just you know if they don't want to put it out they don't want to put it out whatever what was the touring like for that record what'd you guys do uh, we started in the fall um we went like three months well we had It's All Right was supposed to be the song for um, Armageddon. They had licensed it. Um, so we thought we were going to get a great push from that. And then we lost that because I guess Liv Tyler wanted her dad to do that song, Don't Want to Miss a Thing or whatever, because oh. he was working with Diane Warren. So we we lost that. Um, I just watched that last night. Us. Yeah. I literally just watched so, that last night. <laughs> It was supposed to be. You know, I don't think you should tell anybody that. Um, but <laughs> it's a, um, it's good cheesy. Have a beer on a Friday when you're trying to relax and it is. watch. No, I'm just kidding. I, no I it's just actually it as well. It is terrible. <laughs> like you watch that movie, and you're like, none of this makes sense. This is terrible. The film, the film, like the the actual, like how they shot things looks terrible. And you know, Michael Bay is mm. over the top direction and everything. But mm. like. That song, I mean, that song almost like killed Aerosmith in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. Not to go on a tangent, but like it kind of, they had so much momentum in the early 90s. Yeah. And yeah. that just, just um, what's the name of that album? Just Push Play. That yeah. album was, had some decent stuff on it, and that song just like murdered them. Yeah. And, and it, it, but it murdered us too, because it fucking, you know, killed our record. Um, and at the time, you know, again, it was really difficult because Dave was sober. We're on tour. Pete's out of control. Drugs and alcohol, like fucking mayhem. We finish up the the fall uh, in December. Um, I get a phone call from Dave because we've got another three month tour starting in um, at the end of January to go into um, '99. Dave's like, look, you know, I, I can't do this. Uh, I've, got, I've got to go leave the band. Um, you know, I'm struggling with my sobriety because of, you know, what Pete's doing. Um, and I was like, fuck, okay. Um, is there anything we can do to change? He's like, no, I, I just can't be around it. So he leaves. And then like a week later, Barty decides to quit as well. So, um, you know, we, we have to postpone. I think we canceled like first three weeks of the tour um, in 99. I can't really remember if it was the first three, three weeks or what. We did something. We had to postpone something. Um, Didn't you have a blood vessel then, burst in your throat at some point too? Yeah, that was uh, that was the um, summer of 98. Um, we had been on tour and, and we were supposed to do some dates with um, Black Crows, I think, like around July 4th and whatnot. And I had that hemorrhage in my throat. We were just out doing, setting up the record or the release of the record. So we were just out doing some, um, like, I think it was like a month long kind of 
dates at certain specific areas for radio shows and stuff, and I popped a blood vessel. So we had to cancel those the dates for the Black Crows, which sucked. Um, and I took the entire summer off to kind of heal up my throat. And then we picked up that fall tour, and Dave quit in January, Barty quit, and then all that other shit. You know, we I found Shannon Larkin um, to fill in on drums, and then uh, this kid Rob Reddick to play on bass, and I still had Robbie Allen playing with us. So, uh, you know, it's me and Pete and three new or two new guys, um, and that was a really hard tour. Uh, it was just, you know, totally mayhem. Pete ended up quitting um, in April. We were in Denver. Um, we played the Bluebird Theater. He walked off stage, went and packed his shit, went to the airport and flew home. We had to cancel the last part of the tour. Um, we reconvened in San Francisco in, in the, I think the end of April or first part of May, we played two more shows and um, that was it. So did you yeah, know at bad. that point that the band was going to be going on a hiatus or? Yeah. You, okay. Yeah. We, <laughs> we got the, we got the fight in San Francisco, Pete and I, um, and um, I, uh, I was, you know, I'd had it at this point. I mean, I, for, for years, you know, I felt I had been working around his addiction, um, working around the things that he needed rather than what the band needed. Um, I let him know that when we were in San Francisco. Um, and uh, yeah, it didn't go well. We did the San Francisco show. It was not good. Got to Modesto. It was worse. And, um, yeah, I just kind of, I just blew up and said, yeah, I, I'm not going to fucking take care of you anymore. So I, I knew, I didn't know how long it was going to be. I didn't know it was going to be six years, you know, six and a half years. Um, but I, I knew that it was going to be a while. Um, and it was, and it was, uh, it was hard. I mean, there was, it was a year of two, actually two years. Cause I was fucked with Maverick. I was stuck as a key man, um, clause in that I was not able to get out of the deal with Maverick. I was in limbo as to what I could do as an artist musically. Um, I had to keep turning in demos to the label because they wanted me to continue on as Candlebox. Um, I was doing everything in my power to deliver the worst fucking demos I possibly could in the hopes that I would get dropped from the label. Um, yeah, it was, it was not good. It was bad. Um, mm. But, you know, I mean, it was that I had allowed myself to get there. It's kind of my fault, you know, for not putting my foot down back in 95 and, and, and saying, listen, you know, I, I, as a collective, we're going to destroy this band unless we stop it right now and, and figure out who's going to drive this fucking boat. Um, and that's, you know, that was the, unfortunately I should have done that. I should have just, been a fucking asshole and said, look, this is my band. This is how it's going to fucking go. This is what we're going to do. And you like, get your shit together. You're fucking gone. But I didn't do that. You know, I, I wanted to 
I wanted the loyalty, the band forever, you know, the Aerosmith and all the bullshit that goes along with it. Um, and, um, and I was a fantasy because none of us knew one another. We weren't friends. Um, so how the fuck can you, you know, do something like that if you don't know one another, if you, if you don't have a chance to go sit down with your best friend and say, you're being a dick, your drugs are fucking you up, they're fucking up, you know, everything that's going on in our lives, stop it, you know, because if you're not friends, you can't do that because no one's going to fucking listen to you, you know, they're going to think you're an asshole and go, you, what do you know about me? You know, I've got this all under control. So it really was my fault um, that I allowed myself to be in the position that I was in. Um, but again, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and and um, you know, I wouldn't change anything because it's the life that I have now. All comes from that, and I understand that. Um, and and I've, you know, I respect what we went through as a band and, and what we went through as human beings, um, and as friends now because we are friends now. But it was hard, man. It was really, you know, it's really hard to to, to sit there and you know in the desk of knowing that you're something that you've been working on for, you know, nine years is gone. Fast forward to what? 2006, seven. Mm-hmm. Um, well, 2005, what? we got the phone call about the best job coming out. Okay. And what? 2008 is when into the sun comes out. Yeah. Um, I was reading an interview you did talking about the song stand um kind of a commentary you described as a commentary about bush's second term in brief Mm -hmm. which really struck me because that's a theme that has come up on our show yeah quite a bit in that you know i think that in the 90s is very much characterized as being angsty and angry in a lot of ways um Mm -hmm. but politically in comparison uh, between 2000 and even now, um, there wasn't as nearly as much to be angsty about. <laughs> um, I, I think Tim and I both are, you know, politically aligned, and I think we were shocked through the 2000s that nobody was really saying anything in music um, about what you know what was going on, what our country was doing, the wars we were in. It wasn't driving very much artistic expression. Um, so, you know, realizing that that's what that song was about and the fact that you did that, I don't know, just talk about that a little bit. And I guess just backing out of, out of your own personal take on it, um, should bands be doing more of that? Are we, are we not hearing enough, um, from our, from musical artists about, you know, um, politics or, you know, important issues and, and being more rebellious on that level? Absolutely. You know, bands are afraid to piss off the fans and fans think fans think that bands have nothing, you know, have no right to offer their opinions. See, it's a totally different shift than what it was in the, you know, obviously in the the sixties and the Mm -hmm. seventies. Because, you know, the audience wanted to hear what the band had to say. They wanted to know what their political stance was. They wanted to know what they were supporting. They wanted to know what they believed in. Now they don't, they just want to hear your music. Mm-hmm. You know, so they don't fucking care. Mm-hmm. I don't care what you think about, you know, I've had people say to me a million times, you know, I'm not here to hear your fucking political opinions. You know, I'm here to hear this song. Cause I, mm-hmm. you know, I play songs live, like cover me and I, you know, I tell the story about it when I played acoustically and 
what it was inspired with and now how I feel about gun control and stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. You know, why do you got to fucking, you know, be political and shit? You play the fucking songs. I'm like, if you're a fan of mine, you know, I'm political. If you know who I am and you've been listening to my band since day fucking one, mm-hmm. there's never been a song that hasn't had some sort of fucking, you know, attitude about this fucking world, you know, especially politics and, and what politicians do. And so I get very angry with people because I'm like, you're, you know, you're, you're a coward. You don't want to hear the truth. You don't want to hear the opinions. You just want to fucking sit there and, and think that everything's okay and that life's good and hunky dory when, you know, you're getting screwed left and fucking right by these people. Um, so when I did stand, you know, Pete and I got an argument about it. He's like, I don't, I don't, you know, subscribe to this. I don't think that, you know, what we're doing in the Middle East is bad, you know, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm a Republican and, and, you know, there I am going, well, you're a fucking idiot because you're a Republican and that's the fucking problem there. And, you know, um, you know, again, it's like, I think artists are afraid today to say what they want to say because they're, they're afraid they're going to alienate their audience. And I don't fucking care. Like, if you don't like my opinion about it, that's fine. Just don't like my opinion. It has nothing to do with my music. If you like my music, like the music. If you don't like my opinion, don't like my opinion. I don't give a shit. That's fine. I don't like yours. You know? But you're still here at my show, and because you've been listening to me for that long, you're going to have to listen to what I have to fucking say. You know? I'm not a puppet. I'm a human being, and I have feelings, I have emotions, and that's where I come from. You know, I respect Eddie Vedder for you know, taking the amount of heat he took when he would wear that mask of George Bush on stage and, you know, people booing him in Madison Square Garden. He's like, fuck you. You know, this person right here, this mask that I'm wearing is destroying this country. And you're too stupid to fucking see it. Mm. And if I can't point it out to you, get the fuck out of here. You know, I mean, it's like certain people, you got to understand the reason that society moves the way it does and certain people you know, continue to climb the ladder is because their intellect is a little bit better than yours. And maybe you should fucking pay attention to what that person's saying. You know, like Neil Young was saying in, in the 60s and the 70s and, you know, all these great artists and, you know, Joan Baez and, and Arlo Guthrie and Bob Dylan and fucking Hendrix and, you know, the Beatles and the Doors and, you know, it goes on and on and on. All these fucking amazing musicians that have these brilliant fucking songs about how you're getting fucked over by politics and what they're doing to your life and what we're doing in war and who's getting killed and all these things. That was great. Why can't we have the same kind of fucking relationship now with, with the art that these musicians are creating? Because people are stupid. Mm-hmm. That's why. And they don't want to hear it. They want to bury their head in the fucking sand. They want to win, you know, the mega millions or the, you know, the Powerball because they're stupid enough to think that they're going to. I mean, you know, it's just, it's fucked up. And yes, artists aren't doing enough. And they're cowards because they don't want to fucking say what's on their mind because they're afraid of alienating their fans. And for that, you know, fuck you. You don't, <laughs> you don't deserve the job that you have. Mm. There's also some cognitive dissonance. Like, when Springsteen went out for Obama in 08 and I remember watching mm-hmm. news, you know, the news at the night at the end of the night. And they were like, you know, people are walking out of the Springsteen show mad because he's stumping for Obama. It's like, did you not listen to, to born in the USA? Like, do you not yeah. know what those lyrics are about? You, you don't understand this guy's been political since day one. 
Like, but they don't. No, because they they just they hear what they want to hear. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's because it's like... they're stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin Martin from Kennelbox saying that. Uh... Hey, America, you're stupid. <laughs> hey, is there something you got in your mind? Can you speak a bit louder? Just wait. Listen close to these words and you'll find it gets harder to swallow their lies. Stay. All they ask is you them fools yes you made it so far so you play bring your friends to our party recruit it'll take you much further Actually, I I do want to talk about the Into the Sun record quite a bit because I feel like in revisiting that in the past um, couple of weeks or actually a couple of weeks last couple of days preparing for the interview, um, I I feel like in terms of if I was you know people do rankings of favorite albums by an artist they you know this one's their favorite album and then two three four this to me like in terms of capturing what you guys did on the first record which is obviously my favorite record. There's so much like sonically in the, in the songwriting and in the, in the sound of the, the band playing. And I'm guessing it's because everybody had been apart for a while and they were able to like maybe rejuvenated in some sense that this album to me, like recaptures a lot of that initial sound. Um, and I'm, I'm curious if, if you have the same feeling that like, because you had been apart, for I guess it'd been six years that getting back together and sort of slowly, you know, bringing the band back together over a couple year period, if, if you were able to sort of recapture some of the stuff that you had done on that first album. Yeah. Well, you know, again, it was, we, this was that point in the career where I said to Pete, and I, and I was, I was adamant about it. Um, Cause Barty was at the time um, he, you know, he'd come back to the band but he was studying to be um, an attorney. Um, and in the process of us trying to write for the record, which we started writing for on the, uh, on the tour in 2006, um, and then we got a space in Seattle, and we started working in Seattle, um, we, I noticed that he was really just distracted. And Scott, of course, you know, being that he had just come back to the band, um, I think was realizing that he wasn't the drummer that um, we needed for the record. And, and, and so I, I went to Pete and I said, look, we're going to have to do this on our own, you and me. And I, and I was like, I think we've realized with the songwriting that we've done with other projects and the other bands that we've worked with over the past, um, you know, six years that we're far better songwriters than I think we may have thought we were. Um, when we started the band. So we're going to have to really focus on this ourselves. So we we sat down with Marty 
Um, and we're like, uh, we need you to make a decision about what you're going to do with this painter. And he was like, what do you mean? I want to, you know, I want to, I want to be, you know, I want to, I want to make the record, but I don't want to tour. And we're like, yeah, well, that's not going to work. You know, we need, we need you to make a decision. You're either in or you're out. Um, so we really had to kind of set the, 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 set the record up to, to be written without distraction. And that was why we chose to go the route of saying, you are, are either in the band 100% um, or you're not in the band. And we did that to Barty. Um, and so he, he's like, well, I, I can't focus on that because I just passed the bar and I'm going to be an attorney. So we said, okay, we can't do this with you. So he left. Um, but again, I was taking that role, like I said earlier, where someone needed to figure out how to let everyone know that somebody was in charge. But in the process of, and, in, and it's in, and I'm, I got to be careful how I say this, but somehow manipulating them to understand that, yes, your opinion is valid here, but still, you really need to take a look at the big picture. And the big picture is there are two songwriters in the band, and those two songwriters need to write this record. And then you guys come in when the record's written, and we'll make the album, um, sort of thing. And so that's what I did, and and I. I pushed very hard for that and I got it. Um, and that's why the record kind of sounds the way it sounds because Pete and I really just took it upon ourselves to, to write that record. Um, and, and we did it together and it took a year um, to write the album. And it sounds like it sounds because we went back to a lot of that kind of early Candlebox conversation songwriting that we had done back in 91 92 um, where Pete and I would talk about the songs and and he started to kind of remember who he was as a guitar player and I think that he had kind of lost sight of that with Lucy and happy pills and the drugs and alcohol and now he's sober and he's understanding you know what he's capable of and and the, the importance of him as a guitar player in this community of rock and roll. I, I still consider Pete to be probably the best guitar player I've ever played with. Um, I think he's one of the, the greatest guitar players of our time. I think his talent supersedes a lot of the musicians that, that exist today. Um, only thing is, is he never really realized how talented he was. Um, and that's why that record feels the way it feels. Now, we fought on that record. We fought several times during the making of Into the Sun, but they were different fights. They weren't fights now about who was playing what. They were fights about melodic elements of, of songs. Why are you playing that guitar solo? That is that, that guitar solo isn't relevant to what the song's about. We talked about this song. We discussed what the song was about. That guitar part doesn't have anything to do with what we've discussed. So, you know, that, but that made it, that much better of an album and working with somebody like Ron Yalo and, and um, Cliff Norell, the, the engineer, Cliff had worked with Henry Rollins and all these other great punk bands. And Ron was a, you know, amazing songwriter producer. They were able to help us take that anxiety and frustration that we were having with one another in these songs and turn them into what we needed them to be on the record. So it had everything to do with Ron and Cliff. Well, one of the things I picked up listening to that and it, it, it clarified so much of just the sound of Candlebox, whether it's on Lucy or, or the debut or 
um, Happy Pills is that I noticed that in a lot of the songs that I really liked is that you guys use a 6-8 time signature, which is mm-hmm. not something that very many bands used in the 90s. It was typically 4-4, you know, that driving beat. Occasionally you'd have like a sound garden or, or, or a radio head that would go into like 5-4 or some weird 7-8 or something like that. But 6-8 gives you that like a little bit of a swing, which reminds me of like early Van Halen, where you know <laughs> Roth would have that swing, and, and, it, and it, I think it, what it does is it gives the vocals uh, that a little extra oomph in terms of rhythm. Um, when you have that little extra swing in the, in the in the rhythm section, and I'm wondering if you guys are conscious of that, whether you because six eight Jay and I have been musicians for a long time. We you know one of the struggles with six eight is you get locked into that that waltz a lot of times with six eight and it's hard sometimes to break the mold but you got like i think simple lessons is in uh, a swing uh, like three four or six eight depending on where the chord progression you know is you is that i think stand on the first song on this album is um there's some other ones and i'm just curious if like if you're conscious of that or if it just comes out of naturally out of songwriting well for me what i love about six eight uh is the waltz element of it um and what you can do within that um, musically, uh, you know, studying classical music when I was a kid and, you know, learning how to play French horn and clarinet and all that stuff. It's obviously one of the things that um, that you study um, is the waltz and, and why it works so well and why it's, you know, such an incredible time signature. Uh, and a lot of my favorite bands, um, you know, Zeppelin and The Who, and mm-hmm. they all kind of, worked within it and, and the Beatles and uh, but it does allow for a swagger in the vocal it does allow for a swagger in the guitar it, it allows the song um, a little bit more freedom um, than the standard 4-4 and I'm always conscious about it when I'm writing um, like on the new record there's a song that, that um, I think is a B-side we've, we've decided to make it a B-side um, called All That We Got but it's in that kind of old school Queen six eight, which is really bombastic and big, um, which is what I, you know, again growing up listening to Queen all the time. Maybe that's why I, I do focus on six eight as much as I do. Um, but it it just it's one of those signatures that that kind of made us stand out from other bands. Um, and I I was always kind of conscious of it that wow we really are kind of the only band that's doing this right now. That's um, kind of cool. So, but I always wanted to make sure we had one or two on a record just because I love it. And I love, uh, I love how the songs feel in it and, um, and why they kind of uh, allow themselves to, to be heard more than other songs. I don't, I don't understand the theory behind it. I'm sure my bass player, Adam, could explain it to me because he's a, a, a theory buff. But um, it just seems like it... it it allows itself to do what it wants to do when it wants to do it, rather than trying to put a square peg into a round hole yeah. musically. Yeah. There's a contrast. I, love it. I think cause you're, you're rhythmically oriented. There's a, there's tons of opportunity there because you can be, you can be on top. You can be actually propulsing the song with your vocal and the rest of the band is really just kind of in a groove and hanging back and then waiting, you know, and kind of can, can, can come up, 
you know, to match the vocal at times, which it just creates a contrast, which is always interesting. There's a push and a pull that happens. Exactly, because the vocal can bounce around in six eight in in such a different way, mm-hmm. um, because those there's all those finger pointings that can happen um, in that rhythm. Uh, you know, uh, it, it, it's just those 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 movements that you know when you tap out in six eight, and your fingers can do something in four um, or three four. You know, it it just I. I I don't know. I find it, I love it. I find it super interesting. I've I've always made sure that there was one on every single record, at least one. And uh, yeah, it's it's probably it's one of my favorite signatures to write in. Watching, uh, I'm a huge Van Halen fan, so I, I've seen the last couple tours with Dave. And one of the things that's funny is that yes, they you know they tend to write with a swing feel, at least the early stuff. And he would be rhythmically on top of that, you know. And mm-hmm. yeah, his vocals have come under a lot of criticism on the recent tours. And I'm more of the point of view is I don't care if he sings in pitch. What I care about is that he hits the timing right. You know, and that's yeah. to me like hit the line when you're supposed to hit it. I don't care if you're in key or not, because to me, yep. it, that ends up becoming more important. You know, it, it's that rhythm back and forth and that, especially when you get familiar with the songs, like you want the, you know, you want the vocal to happen when it's supposed to happen. If it starts to fall back, especially in a swing feel, it starts to feel like a singy songy or a lounge song. And you're like, no, yep. no, 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 no. <laughs> you know, this has got to be rock and roll. Like you got to be on top of it. So the rest of the band can be cool, you know, be cool and be laid back in the pocket. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's not easy to do, but it's something that's always, I think you guys have always done really well. Thank you. Appreciate that. Jerry, you're talking about the Vince Neil issues. Well, then <laughs> there's Vince Neil where he just doesn't sing. And then you're like, I, I don't know why, why am I here? Yeah, exactly. Pro tools. <laughs> to, to listen to barks and hear the crowd sing to him. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, I, we can't we can't uh, move on without talking about love stories. Um, you know we're big failure fans. Um, we've done a couple episodes in the band. We've talked to Kelly on several occasions. Um, fans of everything that Ken has done. Uh, it sounds like you were as well. How did the connection finally come to work with him on that record? And what was that that process like? Um, I I was pretty forceful with my manager uh, at the time, Kevin Lee, that I wanted to work with Ken. I was like, I don't care what you do. If you do anything, you, you get in touch with Ken to, to make this album. Because I knew that he, I had, I had picked up a couple records he had done uh, prior to uh, Love Stories that I was just in love with, the production and just where the bands were going. And I knew that it had everything to do with him because I just, I, I been such a fan for so long so our manager kevin got in touch with him and um he flew up to seattle to see his play and he's like you know i'm not really sure 
you know, what kind of records you want to make. And I don't know, you know, how, I don't know how many songs you have. I said, you know, well, we've got like six ideas. Mm-hmm. But I said, you know, we're, we're kind of that band that we take those ideas and, and we turn them into songs really quick. He's like, oh, okay. But I said, but I want to make a record that is, um, that is dangerous, that pushes the envelope of what people expect of Candlebox. Um, and I want to make a record that isn't, isn't safe in any way, shape, or form. Hmm. And he was really kind of like, well, how do you plan on doing that? I said, I have no fucking idea. That's why I'm talking to you. Um, <laughs> and, and he was like, okay. Uh, and I said, I mean, you know, I, I go, Ken, I look through your entire catalog of things that you've done, bands that you've worked with, I said, you always put your fingerprint on every single one of those. That's all I want you to do with this. I just want you to make me make the best record of my career. And, um, and that's what he did. And I think, you know, love stories, it's not in some people's opinion, as good as into the sun. Um, but I think that has to do with the fact that it only has, you know, whatever eight originals on it or something. That's what, you know, that's what working with Ken, you know, did, was really uh, like the song Turn Your Heart Around. I had written that for Chris Daughtry. He didn't use it. So I called him and said, hey, do you mind if I use this song? And he's like, yeah, sure. But I did it differently than we, read it, than we had written it for him. Um, and so, it, but it still feels like Candlebox. Sweet Summertime, you know, is, is that growth of the band that, you know, um, making ourselves more accessible for a newer audience, you know. And, and that's kind of like always what I do when it goes to making a new record is, I, I know who my audience is. They're always going to be there. I need more people. I need a different audience. And so I always kind of, you know, try to write songs that, that, um, steer us in that direction. Um, Youth and Revolt, um, was a song that was inspired by what was happening in the Middle East and Egypt. Um, you know, with the kids, uh, taking over to, to taking the streets and, and voicing their concerns with, you know, their opinions of life and how they're being, oppressed and you know every song on that record has something behind it that is um entirely emotional it's a it's a it's my favorite record up you know until i made this new one um it i think it's an album worked of um uh full of of great songs um you know but that's just my opinion but you know pete and i we we hit a really uh good um point writing uh, when it came time to work on that record. And also, we had written with Sean Hennessy, um, who uh, was a guitar player, had been playing with us um, since 2006, uh, written a couple songs on there with Adam, the bass player. So it was a lot more collaborative album, and I think that's kind of why it feels the way it feels. Songs like She Come Over Me um, and uh, Them Eyes and, and uh, stuff like that. You know, it's got, it's got other influence besides Pete and myself. Well, it's definitely got a Ken Andrews influence. I mean, yeah, it's maybe not overt, but certainly if you know he produced it and you're familiar with his sound, you hear it, especially yeah. in something like Sweet yeah. Summertime. You know, just rhythmically, it's very much in tune with with you know I think what he brings to the sound of the band.
how did um, he work with Pete? Was that did that go pretty well? Or um, I know you know being guitar players and, and whatnot, which were they able to kind of see eye to eye on what how things should be played and done? Yeah, they, they worked pretty well together. There were a couple points where Ken, you know, would be like, hey, you know, you're, you're kind of being a dick here. You know, you're, you're, you're fighting a part that you don't need to fight. You know, mm. it's irrelevant to the song. Um, but he was able to talk to Pete that way. And Pete respected Ken, you know, because Pete loves failure as much as the rest of us. Mm. Um, and then Ken did a lot of work on this record um, when, when we left it with him. You know, uh, we recorded it in, in 13 days left it with him to, um, to, to mix and do overdubs. And he, he's like, you know, how much freedom do I have? And I said, you do entirely freedom, whatever you want to do. You want keyboards on there, horns, whatever, just do your thing. Do you want to do background mm -hmm. vocals? Do background vocals. We, I said, I'm leaving it in your hands to, to give me the record that you know I want. And that's mm -hmm. what he did. And um, so there's a lot of guitar parts on that record that are Ken. Um, and and that are you know tracking with Pete or you know playing against Pete's guitar parts and stuff, which um, you know at first I think Pete was really kind of mad about, um, and then the more he listened to it, he's like, I really get it, you know, I kind of understand why that does that, why you, why you would put that there, and it's, you know that's that's allowing yourself to be a musician when mm -hmm. you are you know you allow yourself or the, the music that you created, you put it in somebody else's hands to, to make it that much more special mm -hmm. and you can recognize it. Now you're being a musician uh, instead of just being, you know, somebody that's fighting over a part. Right. And I think that makes for a really interesting catalog for a band, you know, where there are times where there's albums where you go in and you allow a producer to shepherd you and there's albums you come in and say no it's the four of us we're going to sit in a room together turn tape machines on play you know and there's albums where maybe you bring writers in i mean that makes for you know as you go back and visit things and kind of take the journey of the full catalog it, it makes it interesting because it brings out different things in the band um, would yeah. you agree with that oh absolutely 100 yeah. you mentioned about writing for chris daughtry are there other or maybe you can't get into this but have you written for other artists yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they, I don't know if they've used it. Um, maybe they have. I don't really pay attention to it. Um, but yeah, I've, I've written for a lot of people. There's a, a girl named Pia Toscano. She was on American Idol years ago. Um, I think she's waited, like one of J-Lo's backup dancers or something. I wrote four songs for her that they're getting picked up, um, I think, like next next year or this year to come out. She's releasing an album or something. I just had to do some contract stuff for her. Um, I've written for a lot of young musicians, young bands that, you know, needed songs. Um, but, uh, you know, anything that's been a hit, no, I haven't had anything like that yet. Um, I just, I, I spend more time writing for myself than I do for other people. So, I mean, I guess if I took the time to sit down and try and figure out if I could write for somebody, you know, like, um, uh, you know, uh, Three Doors Down or, you know, maybe a rock band or something, I don't know if I would. Um, I just kind of prefer to keep, you know, the, my good songs for me. I, I like how you said Three Doors Down or a rock band. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, that's funny. No, that's good. Because um, I feel the same way. Uh, the, the, in that context, real quick, though, is that a situation where you know who you're writing for? I mean, so they come to you and say, hey, we got this artist. Can you write songs for that would be appropriate for them? Or are you just writing and then turning them over and kind of somebody shopping those to different artists how does that work exactly i write for them 
Yeah, I okay. write for for their voice. Um, I mean, it's being a singer. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of like I know I know who I'm. You know, I know what I want, and I know you know what works for me. So I want to make sure that the person that I'm writing for is, you know. It, is that you know is is what I think it is, and so I spent a lot of time talking. Like with Pia, I, you know, I talked to her for a long, long time about what kind of record she wanted to make, and you know, the directions and things that I felt that you know we've got enough J Lo's. Um, you know, what what other artists inspire you? Are you a Florence fan? Do you you know do you like Duffy? Um, if you could have uh, any kind of song out there right now, you know, of Adele's, which one would it be? You know, so it's it's really about using the inspiration of of the artists that you respect to to you know give you the songs that you want as a singer. Um, you know, you, you can find inspiration in in so many different artists. Um, it doesn't mean you're going to sound like them, but you can at least use what it is that you love about them and put it in something that you're doing. You know, and that's what I spend a lot of time doing. It's you know, Chad Taylor calls it. I, I pull from my library. Um, my musical library to inspire, you know, my songs. And, and that's really kind of what I, I try to do with everybody I work with is if you could have that one song in the world right now, what would it be? And how do you, how do you create that with, with that in mind without taking that person's song? Mm-hmm. You know, where does the lyric come from? What inspires that word? Why do you feel that way? What chord progression works with, with your voice? Mm-hmm. All those things come into it. But with that main song in mind, how do we create hello, you know, mm-hmm. without sounding like hello? Mm-hmm. Well, you need a really fucking amazing lyric, you know? Mm-hmm. You need something that is fucking groundbreaking. And and that's kind of what I try to do. But doesn't it have to be also universal? Like, it has to be groundbreaking, but it also has to connect with everybody. So yeah. it's a really t- difficult tightrope to walk. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you got to be careful too because, you know, it, it's kind of like comedians. You know, everybody's you know accuses everybody of stealing everybody else's jokes. Well, there's only so many ways you can fucking tell a joke. You know, I mean, there's only so many ways you can use certain words. Everybody's heart's been broken. How do you you know tell somebody's heart's been broken a different way? And, and making sure that it doesn't sound like somebody else's heart that was broken, you know, six months ago on the same record sort of shit. It's hard to do, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's difficult. Most of the time I find the easiest way to do it is make it incredibly personal, you know, and make it more internal than external. And um, utilizing something in your life that everyone that is going to listen to that song can attach themselves to that said that that's happened to me or that I've said that same thing. I felt that same thing, you know, I don't know. I half the time I go in to make a record. I don't have lyrics written. So I, you know, I kind of let the song develop them for me. But with this record, when I was recording Grant and um, Carson, there were things that I didn't want to say that they said, no, you have to say that. So I allowed kind of, them to direct my my fears, if you will, um, the things that, that I was allowing myself to say, uh, things that I was going through in, in my career and my life and relationships and friendships and all that short, sort of shit that I wouldn't normally sing about to, to allow myself to sing about. Are you able to find, when you said, you know, sometimes you don't have the lyrics until you're going in, 
are you able to find the melody on like a uh, an instrument to guide you through that process or are you developing the melody with the lyrics I generally develop the melody um, by kind of sort of singing lyrics <laughs> um, so I'll just kind of start the process of, of singing through a song where maybe I'll something will pop in my head and I'll use it as a word and then I'll just kind of mumble through the rest of it. The melody generally comes first for me and then the lyric develops off of that um, because that melody comes from the phrasing and the time signatures and the structures and the rhythms that I'm using as a drummer to understand how many phrases I can use in that one bar, you know, um, how many syllables I need in this one word. That sort of thing is kind of is what I come to after I've I've kind of developed a melody that I want to work with. Very rarely have I sat down and you know written a song with the lyrics done and you know ready to write. I, I've I've done that maybe maybe ten times in my career. Um, like this this record, I have a song called "Alive and Last," which I had the lyrics first and I wrote the song around it. Um, that's really the only one on the new record that I've done that, that um, was written that way on Into the Sun. I had um, Stand lyrically written before I wrote the song. And you know, that's the only one. Oh, no, and, and uh, Kiss Before. I had those lyrics done before I wrote the song. Um, Love Stories. I had the lyrics for Sweet Summertime before I wrote the song as well as Youth and Revolt. The first album, nothing. Lucy, I had Best Friend, lyrically, and that's it. What's going on with the new record? Who's who's in the band now? Uh, that's a little unclear to me, and what are the plans for, uh, for 2016? Uh, I've got, um, might get a little loud now because I've got to check out on my um, I've got Mike Leslie, kid from Detroit, on guitar that I met two years ago. He's a kind of a idiot savant. Um, he's a young kid who plays very much like B.B. Uh, King and Jimi Hendrix. Um, uh, Brian Quinn uh, from Philly, who is um, more of a Randy Rhodes kind of rock guy, hmm. um, but really um, melodically very talented guitar player. Um, understands melody with guitar and tone incredibly well um and then adam curry still with me of course bass player has been with me since 2007 but was also with me in the high watch from 2000 um and then dave cruising on drums cool so yeah that's the band and then 2016 the record comes out in april um it's called disappearing in airports and um yeah i mean it's tour 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 we start when did we start? Uh, we got South America, Lollapalooza in South America on the 19th. We're doing Lima, Peru on the 17th. Those are both March dates, and then everything picks up right after that. So it'll be touring through April and May. And then um, we go to Europe, I believe, in May and June. And then some stateside stuff, and then maybe Japan. I really don't know. I mean, I, I know that it's going to be a busy year, and that's that's what I know most right now. Excellent. And uh, we should let people know for all those tour dates, they can go to uh, candleboxrocks.com. To, uh, you can go over there on the front page right now. I'm looking at them. 
and uh, hopefully uh, it's only a handful of dates to list right now, but hopefully uh, there'll be something in uh, either Austin or Columbus so we can check you out in the summer. When the new, do you have a release date for the for the album? Or are you still are you guys still working on it? April twenty second. April twenty second. All right. Um, yeah, April 22nd, and um, yeah, we've got uh, Texas is in May. Texas State's in May, I think. We've got Cincinnati. Um, we are doing Ohio, Cleveland, and Cincinnati. I don't know about Columbus. Maybe oh, Columbus. we always Maybe get I... skipped. We always get skipped. <laughs> no, we played that, I played that really great. Um, what's that music complex you have there um, in Columbus? It's got the outdoor one, but it's got the indoor one as LC, well. LC, the... Lifestyle, lifestyle Pavilion. It has a. There's that. Um, it's by the baseball stadium. Yeah, it's by the downtown baseball stadium. I think that's the one you're probably thinking of. I don't know. It's uh, it's like there's this great music venue inside, but they also have shows outside, like an amphitheater. Yeah, yeah. It okay. like op- It like has two. The stages has two sides, I think, and they can open up either side to be indoor or outdoor. Yeah, we. We did that, but I know we're talking about coming back there. Um, I think in May, so you'll see us. We'll be there. Cool, cool. And then um, you can always go to uh, where is the? Uh, it's a pledge music, and you can pledge on the campaign. Has anybody purchased the uh, acoustic show yet? Yeah, we sold six of those. Those should be fun. Yeah, those are cool. They're they're really really good. A you ever get to somebody's house and you're like, "What's for dinner?" <laughs> no, not yet <laughs> alright because that's what I would probably do um, well we have taken up a lot of your time on this Saturday afternoon and we sincerely greatly appreciate it this has been a lot of fun we've learned way more than we ever anticipated I think about this all this band and, and your career and all this stuff so it's been a, truly a pleasure thanks for spending so much time with us my pleasure thanks guys I appreciate it I just want to remind everybody, uh, you can leave feedback on this episode at iTunes, or excuse me, on Facebook and Twitter. You can leave some positive feedback for us on iTunes, and you can join us at Patreon for behind-the-scenes, bonus material, and all that great stuff. So for Jay and Kevin in Chicago, I'm Tim. We're out. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. You can support the podcast by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com backslash dig me out or requesting a review for the 2016 season at our request a review page at digmeoutpodcast.com